Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to spend all of our time in this passage of Scripture this morning. Not entirely, but almost read all of the verses. But here are some verses that might not come up in our message, so I'm going to read them to you now. Let's look at verse 16, and let me read down through verse 33. Here's the heart of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. But this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now I just want to point out here real quickly that Peter does not have a scroll in front of him. He's speaking as the Spirit is leading him, and the scriptures are beginning to pour out of him. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. And you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Quite a good sermon. I want that myself. I want that myself. I can think of the very first time that I actually had that thought go through my head. It was when I was three or four years old. Our family was camping and setting up camp on our way down from where we lived in Pickle, Ohio, going down to visit grandparents in Florida. My brother at the campsite had gone around and gathered some sticks and some pine needles and with a match that my father had given them, he was five years older than I, he had started a little fire in the fire pit. And dad had called my mother over to marvel at the wonder of this accomplishment. Look what John has done. John has started this wonderful fire for all of us. And of course, I could see my brother's chest puffing up. And I thought to myself, I want that myself. I want to build a fire. I want to build a better fire. than he did. 
It may, at that time, been just sibling rivalry, but there was also something about the ability of doing something significant with your life, and at that time, that seemed pretty significant to me, starting a fire, and the rest of my life has kind of been like that to some extent. There have been individuals who have come in my life whose example and the way they live their life in circumstances and situations have inspired a desire in me to say, I want that for myself. I desire to have that for myself. And now we are looking at this passage in Acts chapter 2, and the story that we're reading about in Acts chapter 2 is this moment in which the Lord Jesus pours out the gift or the baptism of his Holy Spirit upon the church. This is something that he promised to his disciples, this intimate gathering of disciples that had been with him during the Last Supper. After he dismissed Judas and Judas went off to betray him, the Lord Jesus turned to his disciples, and you'll see this in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. The Lord Jesus began to teach them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit coming in baptism upon their lives. The Holy Spirit would come and he would pour out upon them the experience of his own presence drawing in upon them and being near them. Jesus said, I'm leaving you, I'm departing from you, but I'll be with you. I'm going where you cannot go, but I'm going to come to you, and I'll be with you, and I'll be in you. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit who came to bring the very presence of Christ to them. And then after he had died and risen from the dead, the Lord Jesus gathered together others than just this initial band of disciples, others who had come to follow him, and he revealed to the broader company of the saints at that time that he was still planning on pouring out the spirit again and he made this promise he renewed this promise again but now he spoke of it not merely as his presence coming upon them but as power that would come upon them and that they would be anointed with power in order to be witnesses of jesus christ to those they went before and now that time has come it's acts chapter 2 And these individuals have gathered together. They've tarried in Jerusalem waiting for this promise that Jesus gave them of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they're waiting for that moment. Now, we have emphasized that this is something more than regeneration. This is something more than the new birth. We've pointed out that you had experiences of the new birth in the Old Testament. And you had individuals at that time who were regenerated. And out of that regenerative life, they believed in God and they trusted in God and they lived a faithful life before God. This is something that's Going beyond this, now at the focus of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality of the one they had walked with and talked with and touched and held and rested upon and listened to. And and now he was going to come and he was going to renew his intimate fellowship with them. And he was going to bring to them the remembrance of his words and his truth. And he was going to speak them over again to them. And out of this intimate relationship and out of the pouring forth of his words into their heart, they were going to be able to give witness with power to the world around them. And that moment came and they were baptized on that day with the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage, and what we really want to do is we want to look at this passage, and we've we've talked about these other things, about what was promised and the experience that was promised, but what I want to understand this morning is what happens to a person when they experience this baptism. What happens when they have this intensified experience of the presence of the Lord Jesus setting up within their lives? What happens to an individual when they have this intensified outpouring of the power of the Lord Jesus? How does this experience register in that individual when this happens, when the Spirit baptizes them and immerses them with himself? And there's the language, by the way, baptism. It's the outpouring of something upon them or anointing. It's the overflow of oil that comes upon them. Another way in which it's referred to in the Bible is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, this something that overflows their life. And 
What does that look like? How does that register in a person's life? What do we see in a person's life when that's happening? What does it produce in them? How does it mark them in their way forward? How does this experience express itself from their lives? And the reason I want to know this is I want to know if I've experienced that. I want to see, oh, yes, I can identify with that. And I want to know it because I want to know if, if I'm experiencing it now. And I want to know it because I want to know it so that I can mark my life and say, oh, God, do that again. One of the things you'll find about these disciples in the early church is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and it wasn't the last time they were filled with the Holy Spirit. He came upon them again and again with this baptism, with this outpouring, with this anointing. And we want to know it so that identifying it, hopefully our response will be, ah, I want that myself. I want that for myself. It actually seems clear to me that the testimonies that Paul gives from his life as he shares the experience of his ministry and that you see Peter sharing as well and other disciples as their stories are gathered together like the chroniclers like, like Luke in the book of Acts and he shares with us the events and the stories of what was happening in the life of the early believers. I think it's all there for a reason. We're to learn from it. We're to see it and we're not to say, well, that's very fascinating, this historical event that took place. But of course, we're beyond all those things now. I, I don't think so. I think we're supposed to read it and we're supposed to say, I I want that for myself. I think it's supposed to inspire some desire in us for the same experience. Just the other day, I was talking to somebody who shared with me a story of riding on a crowded city bus in a major city in the United States. A woman got on the bus, looked like a cleaning lady, but something about her mannerism as she got on the bus changed the very nature of the bus. There was a light that came on when she came on the bus. The bus was full. They couldn't see her very well, but something about her was glowing in her countenance and the way in which she had exchanges with the bus driver and the people that were standing there that she made her place to stand or sit within the bus. And they looked at them and they thought to themselves, I, I'll bet that that, is, that lady is a Christian. And then as they were on the bus, the, the lady shifted just enough so that they could see on the lapel of her shirt, a little button that said, Jesus saves. And the thought that came to their minds was, I want my life to say Jesus saves. I want that myself. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about some encounter or experience of the life of Christ that changes how our life is presented before others. What other people see and what we see in ourselves. When the Spirit baptized these first Christians, how did it mark them? And how did that marking of the Spirit resonate before others? What did they see? Because it should be something that we might want the Spirit to do for us as well. Now, if you're in the book of Acts, and I want you to stay there at Acts chapter 2, I want to read to you verses 12 and 13, because I think verses 12 and 13 give a clue to the very question we're asking. How did this register? How did it mark itself? And It registers in the response or the observation of those who are watching and witnessing this event take place. As the early church is poured out upon and filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we have those people who are witnessing explaining exactly what they're seeing, and it's a clue for us. It says here in verse 12, So they were all amazed and perplexed and saying to one another, that is, they were inquiring together, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. So they're puzzled. Or they're amazed, they're puzzled, they inquire, and then they conclude. They gather together a conclusion. They see something that somehow amazes them and puzzles them, and then they ask about it, and then they draw together some conclusion of what it is that they're seeing, what it is that it looks like. And and what they conclude is that, well, this person who is 
filled with the Holy Spirit because that's what's taking place. They don't know that. This person looks like they're intoxicated. They look like they're drunk. That's what they're observing. And I want you to see what Peter's response is. Peter speaks to give a defense to this in verses 14 and 15. And this is what Peter says. He answers their amazement, their perplexity, their inquiry, and he challenges their conclusion by saying this, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which means basically it's only nine o'clock in the morning. By the way, I understand that the tradition of Jews was they had their breakfast at 10 a.m., basically saying, we haven't even had breakfast yet. But what I want you to see here is, because I think this is interesting, it really is kind of a weak defense for drunkenness. It really is. He's not saying, look, they're not behaving like they're inebriated. I know that the behavior you see here might lead to this conclusion, but I just want you to know what you're seeing and what you're concluding are two different things. You're concluding they're drunk. Okay, granted, that may be what you're seeing. But I just want you to know it's too early in the morning for that to be the case. You're drawing the wrong conclusion. There's another thing that's happened here that makes you see these things. And what Peter didn't say was, I promise you that we are not drunk. Now, everybody, everybody, I want you, let's walk a straight line for these folks. Everybody take your index finger, touch the tip of your nose. And everybody quote the alphabet here and make sure that everybody knows we're not drunk. It's... No, he's, in a sense, Peter is conceding that they're observing something that looks like intoxication. He's conceding it to them. He's just saying... You're drawing the wrong conclusion. It's too early in the morning for that to be the reason for and that to be the answer for what you're seeing. Let me explain to you what's causing these things. Let me explain to you why it is that you're seeing what you're seeing and you're drawing this somewhat rude conclusion. These individuals have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let's just kind of make this our our primary or central observation. They saw something that looked like, to them, like intoxication. They saw an effusiveness about these individuals. Think of what was it that they saw that looked like intoxication. Let's make this to be, in a sense, the general or core explanation of what happens with a person or how a person who's been baptized with the Holy Spirit presents themselves to others who might not know exactly what it is. There is an effusiveness about that individual. There is an uninhibitedness about them. There's an open-heartedness that comes upon them. I would say, if we were going to write that down, the individual who's been baptized with the Holy Spirit presents a generosity of heart. The heart opens up, and they're generous, and it's free-flowing. Why is it that a person drinks? I'm not exactly sure, but I think one of the reasons is that they're seeking to loosen up their inhibitions. They're trying to get them in a situation where they can relax in social settings or where they can relax in their own homes. They're trying to do something so that they're a little less guarded so that they can feel a little bit less tight, they can feel a little bit more loose. And when a person becomes inebriated with alcohol, they don't have the ability to guard their tongues as they did before. They don't have the ability to keep their secrets the way they did. Their life begins to be poured out in such a way that, well, the Bible calls it a dissipation. They just kind of pour themselves all over the place. It's called a waste. But this unhibitedness is a mark of the spirit-baptized Christian. They were freely speaking without any inhibition. There was no guardedness of self-protection or self-posturing 
All that was in their hearts at that moment was openly and freely flowing from their hearts to all those who were around. And, and in this case, it was all good stuff. It was all good things. It was all meant to be seen by these others. It was rejoicing and it was praises and it was hallelujahs and it was just the opposite of the kind of community you have when you're just trying to follow laws and you're trying to do all the right things to somehow gain some access into God and to press others that you're a righteous person. And all that was set aside. And everything was loosened up as they gave their praise and their glory and they pronounced their wonder before God and before others. And as it poured out from them, they were not put off by the puzzled and astonished faces of others. It didn't hold them back when people looked at them skeptically or cynically or scoffed because they thought they were drunk. They laughed all the more and they just kept pouring out what it was that God was doing in their life. Something inside of them had filled their lives to such an overflowing that it had burst all the bonds of carefulness. And the outpouring of the Spirit had come into them and upon them and like a river of living water was flooding out from them just as Jesus had promised in John chapter 7, verse 38. Do you remember that? The Lord Jesus said, Come to me, all you are thirsty and drink, and out of your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. And that's what happened now. They couldn't even stop it. It was just flowing out from them. And this unrestrained, uninhibited flow. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul writes this. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. That's that example of that person who's just inebriated and he's uninhibited and he's pouring out all kinds of things that he should not pour out. And it's just waste. There's no discretion to it whatsoever. He says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result of that is, you know what? Still uninhibited outpouring from a person's life. What pours out from them is, that they begin to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in their heart. Instead of uh, excessive wastefulness, there is excessive praise, excessive pronouncements of what God has done in the person's life. And when the Spirit baptizes a person with the experience of Christ's presence and Christ's surging power within them, there's an open-heartedness that results, a generosity of heart that cannot hold back itself from others and can't hold back from others what God is doing and how God is revealing himself to them. Another way that we might say this or describe this is there's a kind of transparency that takes place. You'll notice whenever the Holy Spirit really begins to move in a community or in your life, what God does is he, he reveals things to you and he shows things of yourself to you, but he shows things of himself to you as well. He shows you and he shows you himself. And in that moment, it doesn't just become your secret. It opens up a kind of transparency before one another. You always can tell when the Spirit is moving in a body of Christ as they're fellowshipping together. Those individuals begin, they can't restrain what God is doing in their hearts. They start sharing it with one another. They start making it known. They're transparent and By that, I'm not talking about the kind of transparency that we try to mimic. There was an idea. We recognized that that took place, and so then we tried to mimic that transparency in some kind of therapeutic statement where we just tried to coax people to share their feelings with one another and how they were feeling and what they were thinking. And if we could just develop the right therapeutic atmosphere where everyone could talk about themselves, that, that was somehow spiritual, and that's not what we're talking about here. I've actually discovered, having traveled a lot, that people are not hesitant about talking about themselves. Sit next to a person on a plane. and It's not difficult at all to get them to tell you their life story. You can start the plane and you can know everything about them. You can know where they were educated. You can know where they grew up. You can know the job they have. You can know the things they're interested in. You can know all their children's names. And 
They'll never ask you one thing about yourself by the time the ride's over with, but you know everything about them. It's, that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> we're not talking about that kind of effusiveness, and we're not talking about that kind of transparency, but again, where the Spirit pours himself out upon his people, they can't withhold from others what God is doing. It may be a moment in which they reveal some specific confession or sin in their life that God is making known, but in the very moment that they express that confession of sin, they also express their love and desire to please and honor God because what's producing the confession is this outpouring of love within their hearts. The Spirit of God, as Paul says in Romans 5, 5, is shedding the love of God abroad in their hearts, and that love begins to identify and flush out the sin, and they just confess it. And then with it, they say, I just want to live for him and please him and serve him and I want him to guide and direct me. And... But there's this transparency, this bursting forth, this overflowing, this uninhibited generosity. And it looks something like intoxication to some people. They're intoxicated with God. They're intoxicated with God's spirit. Well, there is a difference though. This is not like the intoxication you might have from uh, what you get from a wine bottle. This is the new wine of the Spirit being poured out upon you, and as a result, it doesn't just dissipate. It's not something that's just a waste. It's not just a flourish of frenetic activity, but it, it's focused, and it's directed, and it's impactful in those that are around them in constructive and positive ways. So let's break down this generosity from this passage and just see some examples of how this generosity manifests itself. And the first thing we're going to see here is this generosity of heart, this, this uninhibited outflow from the heart of a person who's been baptized by the Spirit produces a clear message at its center. This generosity produces a clear message at its center. If you look at this story and this accounting that we have here, you should not put in your minds the picture of individuals who have this phenomenal event of tongues of fire that have come upon them and this great earthquake that's taken place and this mighty rushing wind that's swept through that the people around them have heard as well and they, they go out on the streets and they start proclaiming a message and the individuals who are hearing the message are hearing it proclaimed in their languages. You look at all that phenomenal event, but the, the thing is, as you look at these things, you should not think that these believers are just rushing out on the street and they're just shouting hallelujah over and over again that they're just shouting praises in some indiscriminate place here, an indiscriminate place there, and that it was an undirected message. No, when they went out, they went out proclaiming a message to everyone that they encountered on the streets. Go to Acts chapter 2 again. Let me read to you verses 5 through 11. And I want you to see that their testimony here is direct, and it's directed to those who were before them for their benefit. In this passage, we hear the response of those who are hearing what these baptized Christians are saying. It says here, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They were there in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Galatia, Pergia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. These are not just 
indecipherable or undecipherable, undirected shouts of praise and hallelujahs being repeated over and over again. These men are hearing reported to them the message of God's mighty works. And that phrase, the mighty works of God, in the Jewish mind, usually referred to a recitation of God's miraculous leading of Israel out of bondage in Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. And, and maybe that's what these Christians were doing. Maybe their hearts had been opened up and they were sharing the message and the story of God's deliverance of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt into the promised land. And now they're revealing that it connects analogous to something, a greater salvation in which God through Jesus Christ brought men out of the bondage to their sins and brought them into the promised land of life with him. Maybe that's what they were proclaiming and they were putting together their experience of Christ with their knowledge of scripture and there was in a sense by the spirit a download of spiritual scriptural truths that were pouring out through them and being directed to them in the proclamation of the mighty works of God. In fact, actually, if you look at the message that Peter preaches, you'll see that Peter, in a sense, does the exact same thing. He doesn't come and say, well, let me take all these hallelujahs they're saying. Let me share with you all this undecipherable praise that you're hearing, all this confusion because you don't understand what you're hearing because they understood what they were hearing. They understood they were hearing in their own language. They were hearing a very specific message given to him. Peter just repeats again what it is they're hearing, but he explains what the phenomenon is and what the power is behind it. It's the outpouring of the Spirit of God here. What Peter does is Peter recites before all these individuals a message of the Old Testament scriptures that they knew, and he tied it all together to, through it, lift up the person of Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of all those things. He'll tell them that the Lord Jesus was the one who was the subject of Old Testament prophecy. He'll repeat the miracles that the Lord Jesus performed. He'll speak of Christ's crucifixion. Then he'll tell them that the Lord Jesus was the Lord whom King David had spoken of and that he was the promised or the Holy One. And then he'll refer to him as the Messiah or the Christ. And finally he gathers it all together and says, this is the promised King. He'll tell them this is the one who is the risen Lord and Savior. And his message is all gathered down and pointed to them this way. Let's read verses 32 through 36. I think we read... In our scripture reading, verses 32 and 33, but let's go beyond that a little bit. Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 36. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this thing that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now what I want to suggest to you is that something of the message that Peter was preaching, we have recorded for you here, is something of the message of the mighty works of God that these Christians had pouring out from them when they were proclaiming their praises and their hallelujahs and the wonder of God before those on the streets of Jerusalem. And what I want you to see is that when they experienced this effusive outpouring of the Spirit upon them, their hearts opened up in this generous, transparent pouring forth of the uninhibited joy of a message that was composed, it was commanding, it was courageous, it was comprised with the knowledge of God's Word, And it was all centered on Jesus Christ. 
And as a result, as they freely shared these things from their heart and out of their intoxicated love for the Lord Jesus, this open-hearted message became incredibly convicting and convincing as well. The outpouring of the Spirit baptizing us fills us with an open-hearted generosity, but there's a message at the center of it. God has answered his word. What the Spirit does is he brings to our minds and our hearts the knowledge of that scripture. The one who wrote it begins to take what he's taught and express in it, and he begins to express it in our lives, and it begins to come forth from us before others. It's kind of a wonderful thing, by the way. I don't know. When you're sharing your faith with individuals, as you allow yourself to venture into that place where you begin to pour out your heart the truth that God has shown you and revealed to you through Jesus Christ, what you'll discover is that all of a sudden your mind, the Spirit will join you and meet you in the moment, and your mind will open up to His words. His words will begin to pour out of you, and you'll begin to express His truth to, him, to an individual. I, I think of a story, Ignacio, I think this is one of your accounts. Ignacio is preaching to a woman and speaking to a woman in a city in Ecuador, or a town in Ecuador, this is in Huatacocha, many, many years ago. The woman is expressing her concerns about facing judgment and not having answers and not knowing what God's promises are and whether we can trust them or not. And as they're speaking, Ignacio's mind goes to the promise of the rainbow that came over Noah after the flood. And here was this wonderful expression of God's expression of promise in the rainbow. That, and the word came out before them. And as he was sharing that, what you'd see but off in the distance from where they're sitting was a rainbow that was arching out over in the sky pointing to him and expressing to her from God's word and God's truth what that rainbow meant and what it stood for and God's promises and God's promise to release his judgment from upon man if they would believe and trust in him and receive his promises and embrace him. And it's just an example of how the Holy Spirit gives us a message that's lined with scripture and it's composed and it's commanding and it's comprised of a knowledge of his word but it's all centered in Jesus Christ and it's, it's terribly or wonderfully convicting. Look at verses 46 and 47. Here you have, in a sense, a summation of the experience of the disciples on this first day of Pentecost. But there's another point we can take from this. It says here, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That's that idea, that open-heartedness, right? Praising God and having favor with all people. And so, secondly, I want to add to this idea that there's a, a message at the center of this generosity. I want to add to it that the generous heart is lined above all else with gladness. From the start of it, that's the way it had to be. From the moment in which the Spirit began to pour out His fullness upon these individuals on this day, and they were filled with the sense of Christ's presence and Christ's power, the, the one thing that they had to have come upon them was a sense of great joy and gladness. And they couldn't hold it back. It lined, it, it was the atmosphere in which all that they said and all they spoke was conditioned. And, and I think, by the way, that it was this gladness, it was this joy that was most convicting to those around them. It was the expression of a joy that those around them did not have that ultimately convicted them of their deep need. You know, we might think that the reason they cried out, men and brethren, what must we do? Because Peter ended his message with, this one who is Lord in Christ you crucified. That is rather convicting. That might have cut them to the heart, but all along... I think it was the joy of the people, their gladness. It was the power of their joy and gladness that made those words particularly penetrating to that moment. I don't think it would have made an impact with them if 
from angry and furrowed brows or from an expression of anxiety and concern and worry and concern, that message had come to them. It was this convicting message that had come to them out of a life, out of a heart lined, effusive heart lined with gladness and joy. That's the thing that cut through to them. Paul and Silas later on will be in Philippi. In Philippi, Paul will become irritated by a slave girl who is possessed by a demon who is gaining income for her owners because she's been given through this demon the power to tell people's fortunes. And Paul, being annoyed by what she's saying because she keeps pronouncing these men are representing the Christ of God, and he casts the demon out of the woman. In the process, she's set wonderfully free, but the men who owned her lost their business. And so they took her before the magistrates of the city. The magistrates of the city had Paul and Silas beaten with rods and cast into a prison, and they're thrown into the very center of the prison, in the middle of the prison. There in the middle of the prison, Paul and Silas break forth in uninhibited, spontaneous praise and rejoicing. And their song of praise and rejoicing begins to pour forth from their lips and all the other prisoners in that prison hear their praise and it begins to convict them. Their joy and their rejoicing. What is this sound? What is this wonderful thing we're hearing? We don't know it. Such peace, such satisfaction, such joy. And The man who ran the prison house heard that song as well. It was convicting him all through the night. And then in the middle of the night, there was a great earthquake that took place. And we're told it was so powerful that it sprung open all the doors of the prison house. And it loosed men from all of their chains. The prison owner came out and just assumed that everybody had escaped the prison as he entered in and saw the cells were all empty. And he began to take a sword to kill himself. And there came a shout to him from the middle of the prison, from that middle cell that... Paul and Silas had been put in, and they said, now, don't kill yourself. Nobody has escaped. They've all entered into the middle room. Now, that's an odd thing to me. If there's a massive earthquake, you run out of the house. You don't run to the middle of the house. But they ran to the one place that their hearts had been convicted by, and the one place where they knew their need could be answered. It was a place of joy and rejoicing and gladness. They ran into the prison cell where Paul and Silas was. Those other prisoners were convicted by what they heard, the gladness of their song. And so was the man who ran that prison. He ran in and he gave word to exactly what all the others were thinking as well. He fell down before them and said, men and brethren, what do I have to do to be saved? Conviction that came upon them because of the gladness of their song. The generosity that comes upon us as we're filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit makes us generous with our message. We can't hide from people what Jesus has done for us it's a specific message, and we don't just talk about it in terms of what we experience. It's what we've experienced, and you can have. But at the heart of it, it's great joy and great gladness. We're not reproving people. We're not judging them. We're not considering ourselves better than them. We're not impatient or angry with them because they can't figure it out. We're glad. We're filled with gladness. That's the evidence of this outpoured filling of the Holy Spirit. Here's one last thing. It was a generosity that was not limited with words. It was a generosity that was not limited with words. Let's read Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They became generous with their time. They became generous with their praise. They became generous in their fellowship. They became generous in their prayers. In other words, they weren't happy just to get together one hour a week. They became generous with their fellowship. They became generous with their prayers. They became generous with their possessions. And this wasn't a program that someone started. This wasn't a policy that someone enacted. This was not some kind of plan-directed activity. It was the spontaneous overflow of hearts that had been baptized by the Holy Spirit. It was the mark of their baptism. Now, we may not do it exactly as they did it there in the book of Acts. But it should look an awful lot like it. It should look a lot like it. A generosity. A transparency. An open-heartedness before one another in which we cannot get enough of being together to praise Him and pray in which our lives are pouring out the perfume of the presence of the Lord Jesus and also our longing that others might experience the gladness that we know through Him and the salvation that we receive through Him, a generosity that impacts the way we interact with one another. Our hearts will open up to Him and to one another. We won't hold ourselves back in some kind of self-preservation We'll make the Lord Jesus the uninhibited central message of what we speak. Whatever we talk about, somehow it keeps looping back to Him and His faithfulness. Our lives will be lined with gladness in our testimony of Jesus Christ. It will be seen and witnessed that we're people of joy. This generous love will then flow over all our relationships, all our engagements, all of our activities. Generosity not just of words, but found in the way we handle our time and our possessions and our money and our everything. Generosity. Now, having said all that, do you want that? Really? Do you want that? Do you, uh, do you think our world needs that? Would that enhance our message? Would it make it more believable, more receivable? Could you say, I want that for myself? When you look at it, could you think that you could be more effective at sharing Christ without these things? No. The right response when we have these kind of examples put before us was to say, oh God, do that in my life. Do that with me. There's something about the way in which God brings revival and the Spirit of God comes upon the church historically. You see at times this wonderful work of God that is sovereignly and providentially taking place that in a sense we have no control over. We have no control over the Spirit somehow coming massively upon all of us at once. We can't. I would love to have it happen if all of a sudden we all just, at once our hearts just broke open and weeping and tears and rejoicing and wanting to live for Him and please Him and all of a sudden we just began to share with one another the things that we've been holding back and tied up and bundled up with. I would want that, but God has to do that by His Spirit. God has to do that by His Spirit. 
But there is a sense in which what God does in your life, what God does for you, is dependent upon your response to Him. He can bring this to you. He can affect you in these ways. From your life, He can pour out a witness, a glad, generous witness on others that's commanding and composed, convicting. I want that for myself. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. These things, O God, we consider, not lightly. The Spirit of God who inspired the Word of God that we read chose these accounts for us to understand and see and read and to aspire to. We'll never reach any of this, O God, in our own strength. There's there's no 12-step program for this. There's no four steps. There's no three steps. There's one step on our faces before you. One step to the ground, laying before you, saying, Oh God, I'm going to hold to you and I'm going to cling to you and I'm going to wait upon you until you give something of that to me by your Spirit. Produce in me the overflow and the outpouring of your baptism that I life might become an unrestricted place in which the freeness of the gospel and the love of the Lord Jesus is poured out upon all those around me. God, would you do that? Lord, if there's something I'm holding on to and I'm clinging to and I'm trying to preserve maybe time that I felt that I've earned for myself, possessions that are important to me, places of favor and respect, bitterness that I'm holding against those waiting for their payment. Uh, Guarding myself against being wounded again. Protecting myself from another disappointment. God, all these things freely let me lay out before you. So that I might have nothing else but the outpouring of yourself upon my life. We ask in Jesus' name.